Today's scripture comes from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. That's Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all in one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might, rec- so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit today. That as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, that we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. I want to go to three points today, and the three points are from sons to heirs to boldness. Sons to heirs to boldness. What does it mean to be a son of God? When Sung read this passage, he he started off in the start of this passage is, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And some translations might want to translate that into children of God, like the 2011 NIV. But when Paul wrote that we are sons of God, he meant what he wrote. And at first, the progressivism in us may not like that he seemingly excludes a whole gender in his reference. But what we have to understand is that in ancient cultures, and even Today, in most Asiatic cultures, it's the son that was the legal heir to all the inheritance. Daughters didn't get or don't get to inherit property and was forbidden to attain this status of heir. And so Paul, by using this metaphor, is showing us that God has us, whether we be male or female, that we are inheritors of the great promise given to Abraham. In fact, if you think about it, that is actually radically progressive and even egalitarian. You know, biblical metaphors are used the other way too. When Jesus and other parts of Scripture show us that we are betrothed to Christ as his bride, like in 2 Corinthians 11, Revelations 19 to 21, all three chapters are talking about the church and all of us being his bride, especially 21 verse 2, and that all those that are in the church are to consider themselves as the bride of Christ. That means men are also part of being the bride of Christ. Women are his sons 
and we are all heirs. If we don't get past this, then we miss, we miss the point of what the Bible is trying to teach us by using these metaphors. And it's important for us to know that by saying we are sons of God is that now in faith through Jesus Christ, all of us have become this incredible, incredible heir to an amazing inheritance. And how are we heirs? In verse 26 it says, we are heirs through faith. Faith is what gets us adopted into sonship. You know, we do not stand on our gender. And we definitely, as Christians, do not use gender to claim superiority over anyone else. We do not stand on race and claim superiority over anyone else. And we do not stand on socioeconomic status ever to claim superiority to anyone else. We stand on the knowledge that by faith we are heirs of Christ. And what does it mean to be an heir? In verse 28 it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what does it mean to not be any of these things? How do we define heir? And in verse 27, Paul talks about, for as many, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You know, when um, many of you here for my ordination about two, three years ago, and there's a robing ceremony that happens when you are ordained as a minister in the church. And after, after all these things are taking place, in the, part, in the middle of the ceremony, uh, you kneel down, you get anointed by prayer, and when you get up, they robe you. And that robe signifies now that you have been covered or cloth. That's why they say clergy are people of the cloth. You have been covered by this calling by this status now as uh, someone given over completely to Christ as his particular servant in the church as a pastor. But there is something even more fundamental to me as a pastor than the pastoral robe. There is something even more fundamental to you that is the most fundamental underlying layer of our identity and that is the robe of Christ. That is what Paul is talking about when he says we have put on Christ. To be clothed in his righteousness, to put on Christ, is to know that our primary identity and everything else is a far, far second. In fact, God is really showing us that the most wonderful thing to realize is that in Christ's household, our racial, social, sexual status cannot make us any more or less of his child or heir. I want to make a note that with all the things that have been going on, we can be shaken. Um, the question that we have to ask ourselves is our identity shaken to the core 
when we see a white supremacist, when we see someone like that as a leader, or when we have to meet someone like that, or you know, we come paths, our paths cross. And that's a good question for us. As Christians, if we say our most fundamental layer, our fundamental identity is in Christ. So there's a um, man named Peter Randolph, and he was a slave in Prince George County in Virginia until he was freed in 1847. And he described of the secret meetings he had as a slave. And he, he wrote this, not being allowed to hold meetings on the plantation, the slaves assembled in the swamp out of reach of the patrols. They have an understanding among, among themselves as to the time and place. This is often done by the first one arriving, breaking boughs from the trees and bending them in the direction of the selected spot. Slaves would gather and they would worship God. And this was in a place where their captors, their slave masters would not know. They would do this in secret. It's because once they realized, wow, you know what? If the gospel is preached to even the slaves, then they receive Jesus Christ as their savior they become our actual brothers and sisters. That becomes their identity. And they said, we can't, we can't preach the gospel to the slaves. So they actually forbade many slaves from worship and from gathering. So they would do that in private. And then they would go around finding these broken boughs, these branches on the trees. And they would finally find a place where everyone was gathering. And they would be singing. They would be praying until people were at comfort and ease and then one person would rise up and then filled with the spirit they would say they would speak and then randolph would write this the slave forgets all his sufferings except to remind others of the trials during the past week exclaiming thank god i shall not live here always you know this is the hope that they grabbed onto. And it's a remarkable event because the risks that were involved was great. 200 lashes of the whip often awaited those that were caught going to such meetings. And for this, many people, especially many African Americans, yearn to hear the gospel yearn to hear to respond to the gospel and the call to freedom and joy. You know, as they had the gospel in their lives, they were bolstered in their trust that actually coming judgment would come to the slaveholders. There was a man named Moses Grandy who remembered how during violent thunderstorms, and this is what he wrote, whites hid between their feathered beds Whereas slaves went outside and in lifting up their heads, thank God that judgment day was coming at last. The Koreans also have an experience in history where there was an occupation by the Japanese and they experienced such pain and suffering that they have a word for it that cannot be translated fully into English. And that word is Han. 
And this is a culture-bound syndrome that Koreans have where they have a collective feeling of this oppression and isolation that they faced insurmountable odds, that overcoming it was beyond the nation's capabilities. There is this sense of lament and unavenged injustice. And the Koreans knew that this could not be overcome by themselves. And there were some pockets of Christians, like Catholics and Methodists, who complied with demands to attend Shinto ceremonies, but many Christians did not. And they were imprisoned, and they suffered for their faith, and they would say it wasn't for nationalism, but for the theology and their belief in God that they could not go to these ceremonies. A theology arose from this occupation that the Koreans were discovering the deep truth in the Bible that people and all people were made in the image of God. That is what gave these Koreans boldness to stand up for what they believed in. And that's what gave the African Americans boldness to stand up to their southern slave masters. And this is just recent history. Frances Henderson described her conversion this way. I had recently joined the Methodist church and from the sermons I heard, I felt that God had made all men free and equal and that I ought not to be a slave. But even then, that I ought not to be abused. From this time, I was not punished. I think my master became afraid of me. Ultimately, any movement, if not bolstered in the fundamental understanding of our ultimate identity in Christ, will only lead to cycle after cycle of pushing the other down to get one gasp of breath over the stormy waves that come. We can be bold when we realize while there is suffering, oppression, inequality, injustice all around the world that there is a deeper and more profound truth than what we face today. That we are sons of God by faith who have put on Christ as our inner and most deepest layer of our identity. So what does it make us bold to do? It makes us bold to imitate Christ. And what did Christ do? The passage actually does say that we were once slaves, but it was because we hadn't come of age yet, so to speak. And until that coming of age, until you became an adult, you were under guardians and managers. And so humanity, all of humankind was like a child. And if you're a child, you get restrictions. Why? Because you are not ready yet. You know, you don't give a blowtorch to a child. They're not ready yet. You don't let a child manage all your finances and money. They are not ready yet. You wait until the coming of age. This readiness. And what is that determined by? It's determined by the date set by the Father. And the date set was when in verse 4 and 5, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The coming of age of readiness has everything to do with Jesus. The coming of age of readiness is Jesus. And in verse 6, the Bible tells us that if you are sons of God, then you have the spirit of the Son, and you get the right to call God Abba Father. You know, when Paul wrote this, Abba Father was Aramaic, but people knew what Abba meant. Just like we all know what Papa means. We all know what Appa means. We get to call God Abba Father. And you know, when I read this, my heart jumped out of my chest. I get to do what Jesus freely and often did. I get to call. And in fact, the Greek word used here for crying or cry out is krazon, is a loud and passionate call. I get to cry out to the most high God, the most daringly intimate name, Abba. You know, Jamie Buckingham tells a story in his book, Power for Living. And it was a story first told by Fred Craddock while he was lecturing at Yale University. And uh, one summer he went to Gatlingburg, Tennessee to take a short vacation with his wife. And one night they found this nice little quiet restaurant and they just wanted a, a private meal, just the two of them. And I know how that feels when you're busy and you're always meeting people or you're always working and meeting clients or having meetings and things like that, when you go out, sometimes maybe you want a quiet night where you look forward to a private meal, just the two of them. And while they were waiting for their meal, they noticed a distinguished-looking white-haired man moving from table to table, visiting the guests. And Craddock whispered to his wife, I hope he doesn't come over here. And he didn't want that man to intrude on their privacy. And guess what? The man actually did come to their table, though. And then he asks amicably this question as soon as they, he arrives to the table. Where are you folks from? And they reply, Oklahoma. Splendid state, I hear. Although I've been there, what do you do for a living? And then Craddock replied, I teach homiletics at the Graduate Seminary of Phillips University. And the old man replied, oh, so you teach preachers, do you? Well, I've got a story I want to tell you. And with that, he pulled up a chair and sat down with Craddock and his wife. And Dr. Craddock groans inwardly. Oh, no, here comes another preacher story. Seems like everyone has a story for the pastor. The man stuck out his hand. I'm Ben Hooper. I was born not far from here across the mountains. My mother was not married when I was born, so I had a hard time. When I started to, uh, to school, my classmates had a name for me, and it wasn't a very nice name. I used to go off by myself at recess and during lunchtime because the taunts of my playmates cut so deeply. What was worse was going downtown on Saturday afternoon and feeling every eye burning a hole through you. They were all just wondering who my real father was. 
When I, when I was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to our church. I would always go in late and slip out early. But one day the preacher said the benediction so fast, I got caught and I had to walk out with the crowd. And I felt every eye on church on me. And just about the time I got to the door, I felt a big hand on my shoulder. I looked up and the preacher was looking right at me. Who are you, son? Whose boy are you? I felt the old weight come on me. It was like a big black cloud. Even the preacher was putting me down. As he looked down on me, studying my face, he began to smile, a big smile of recognition. Wait a minute, he said. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. You are a son of God. With that, he slapped me across my rump and said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. And the old man looked across the table at Fred Craddock and said, that was the most important single sentence anyone ever said to me. With that, he smiled. He shook the hands of Craddock and his wife and moved on to another table to greet old friends. That's when Fred Craddock remembered on two occasions the people of Tennessee elected an illegitimate, meaning elected someone of single parenthood to be their governor. And one of them was Ben Hooper. We have been given this incredible, incredible privilege of sonship. We have been called to be his heirs. And we, as a result, can stand boldly in the face of whatever may come our way because of who stands behind us. And I pray that this is something that you will hear deep in your heart as the Spirit of the Son speaks into your life today and you get to cry out, Abba, Father. Let's pray.